And you can tell me the name of a Mormon right now that you know. Oh, wow. Almost everybody. How, how many of you have ever had the Mormon missionaries knock on your door? You ever had that experience? Raise your hand. Almost. Not you. Give me your name and address. I'll make sure that they come talk to you next. <laughs> they, it's almost ubiquitous. They'll knock on the door, sometimes have the 10-speed bicycles, you know, and uh, have that Book of Mormon, the white shirts, dark ties, uh, name badges. Or some of us have Mormon uh, family, friends, neighbors, people that we care about. And I do appreciate the Mormon people. They're my people. Uh, but I am concerned that they think they're going in the wrong spiritual direction. Uh, now, what I want to do this evening is kind of take you on a journey from Mormonism to Christianity. I want to tell you what it felt like to be a Mormon, what I was taught and believed to be true as a Mormon. Uh, I was baptized at the age of eight years old. I received the laying on of hands uh, for what they call the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, I later received the Mormon Aaronic Priesthood, serving as a deacon, teacher, and priest. Now, that sounds more impressive than it really is. Almost every Mormon young man holds that priesthood in those offices. And in fact, we'll find out there's a higher priesthood in Mormonism called the Melchizedek Priesthood that uh, virtually all Mormon adult uh, men believe that they hold. I was taught that that priesthood was the same priesthood held by Jesus Christ. I um, went to Salt Lake City and did baptism work for the dead. And I'll explain more about all that to you here in a moment. But I just want you to know, in all those things, I never had an assurance that my sins were forgiven. I was hoping for it, striving for it. But in the gospel of Mormonism, there can be no assurance because your salvation is based on performance. It's based on what you do. But I was fortunate when I was a Latter-day Saint that I had some Christian friends that cared about me, that took the time to build a bridge of relationship to me. Now, Okay, I had a couple of bad experiences with some Christians. I had a couple of Christians who wanted to, uh, you know, kind of bash or just uh, uh, ridicule me. I had a couple of Christians who wanted to give me a piece of their mind, which come to find out they couldn't even afford uh, to give me a piece of their mind, but that didn't seem to slow them down. But most of my Christian friends were not that way. Most of my Christian friends genuinely cared about me, and I could tell. And uh, they did some homework. They were able to ask some questions, share with me things out of the Bible. That, I, I had some share with me things out of the Book of Mormon I was unaware of. And God used those Christians in my life to, take, to help me along my journey from Mormonism to Christianity. I, I want to take you on that journey. And uh, I do have uh, something to help. I have a chart um, there's a little fill in the back. It's kind of a map for the journey we're about to take. I'm going to have a map. And everybody have that? It's a little fill-in-the-blank chart or map. Did they tell you there's going to be a test? There will be a test, so you definitely want to take notes on this one. And uh, this basically shares with you what I was taught as a Mormon. I want, to, I want you to really understand the theology, the doctrines, the belief of Mormonism. But bef- you know, before I share with you anything out of the Book of Mormon or anything from the writings of the prophet Joseph Smith or other Mormon uh, leaders. I'd like to start this evening, if I could, with the Bible. Let's just start with with truth. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you might turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the the Christians who were living in the region of Galatia. And he says to them, Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ, for a different gospel. Now, this is a little frightening because he's, he's saying that they were initially attracted to the true gospel, which he calls the grace of Christ gospel. But there were some teachers there in that area. 
who were, who were trying to convince them not to trust Christ by grace, but to go after a different gospel. He says in verse 7, which is really not another. Okay, was it another gospel or was it not another gospel? Well, what he means by that is that word gospel means good news. And what he's saying is the good news that they're leading you after is not really good news at all. It's really bad news. And he explains in verse 7, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort. Or you, you think it maybe twist the gospel of Christ. I think verse 8 is the key. But even if we or an angel from heaven, he's saying, you know, if, if we, the apostles, come to you, or maybe even if, uh, if an angel was to come down to you. It's interesting the number of religions that begin with the appearance of an angel. I think you've already seen some of that already in this series, haven't you? But if an, even if an angel was to come right down out of the ceiling today and, and, and come to us and present a gospel, if that gospel is not the same gospel, that grace gospel Paul was talking about, it says, uh, verse 8, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to, that, to what we have preached, in you, uh, preached to you, he is to be accursed. So what we see in this little passage here is there's only one true gospel, which he calls the grace of Christ gospel. In any other gospel, other gospel is really bad news because it leads the proclaimer to be under a curse. So what I want to do is kind of share with you the restored gospel. This is my story. This is what I believed. This is what I um, held to be true beyond a shadow of a doubt. The gospel, as I was given as a Mormon. Now, the Mormons will call that gospel, they'll call it sometimes the law of eternal progression. But what you'll hear more often is called, they'll call it the restored gospel. And the reason we call it the restored gospel is very important because there was no true gospel on earth at the time that Joseph Smith lived until he restored it. Let me tell you the story. It all goes back to this young boy, 14-year-old boy, by the name of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, in the year 1820, says that he didn't know what church he ought to join. In the Mormon scriptures, in the uh, history of the, in the um, Joseph Smith history, he talks about not knowing if he should be a Presbyterian, a Methodist, or a Baptist, or perhaps join one of the other churches. So after reading the book of James, James chapter 1, he decides he needs wisdom, so he goes out into a wooded area near his home, near Palmyra, New York. And in 1820, this 14-year-old boy gets down on his knees, and he prays, basically asking God, should I be a Presbyterian, a Methodist, or a Baptist? Which church should I join? Now, Joseph Smith later records, by, by the way, this whole story is told as an adult. He says, back when I was 14, let me tell you what happened. Joseph Smith said, in answer to this prayer, a bright light appears in the woods. And in that bright light, two beings or personages appear to Joseph Smith, identifying themselves as God the Eternal Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. In answer to the question, which church to join, Jesus Christ warns Joseph, don't join any church. They're all false. All of them are false. There is no true Christian church. All of their beliefs, their creeds are an abomination in God's sight. What Joseph Smith later learned is that true Christianity ceased to exist on the face of the earth shortly after the death of the original apostles back in the first century. So there was no true Christianity in the second century, third century, fourth century, fifth century. For all these thousands of years, uh, 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 does, uh, all, all these um, centuries until, the, until Joseph Smith sees this first vision. 
And he's told instead of joining any of the false churches, he's to restore. That's why they call it the restored gospel. He's to restore the gospel on the face of the earth. That's why we called it the restored gospel. So when I was a Mormon, if you say, James, are you a Christian? Absolutely, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. The name of our church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I believe the gospel, the restored gospel. In fact, I believe I was the only, we were the only true church on the face of the earth. All the other churches are wrong. We're more Christian than all, every, all the other churches because we're the only true church on the face of the earth, the restored gospel. Now, here's the key to restoration. Anytime you restore something, the, the, the idea, you know, the, the principle here is it's supposed to match the original. I mean, that's what a restoration is, right? You, you match the original. For example, I love classic cars. So let's just say I'm going to take this 1957 Chevy, and I want to completely restore it. So I'm going to spare no expense. Am I right? There's nothing like a 1957 Chevy. So I'm going to invest a small fortune, everything. I'm going to go through this thing, the, the finish, the paint job, the headliner, upholstery, blueprint, the engine. I want it to be a completely restored 1957 Chevy. So three years later, and a ton of money. I'm finally finished. I'm so excited. I'm going to throw a party, and you're invited. So I invite you to my backyard and show you my completely restored 1957 Chevy. And you say, well, James, we have to talk. What's wrong? Well, James, that's not a 57 Chevy restoration. That's another vehicle. That's like a Winnebago. That's a motorhome. Now, you just hurt my feelings because I worked real hard on this. I spent a lot of money. But the issue is not how much money I spent or how sincere I am. The only question with the restoration, does it match the original? That's what Galatians chapter 1 says. No matter how sincere, no matter how many angels tell you this, if it doesn't match the original grace of Christ's gospel, it's actually very bad news. Now, if you look at your chart, I'm going to take you through this journey. This is your map. And you're going to see right away on your chart, if you look down the middle column there, you're going to see that the Mormon gospel... The restored gospel basically answers three very important questions. Question one in the arrow at the top of the page is the question, where did we come from? I know the answer to that question as a Mormon. I was taught the answer very early. And what I need you to do is, uh, help me out, I need you to suspend your disbelief for a little bit. Uh, We're going to think outside the box a little bit. Uh, Okay, way outside the box. All right? Could it be possible that you actually lived somewhere else before you were born on planet Earth? Now, you just hold that thought. We'll go back to it. That's question one. What's question two? In the box right underneath, you have question two. Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What does God expect of us? Um, as the, um, the creeds would like to say, what is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of life? Or as the Bible asks the question, what must I do to be saved? That all comes under, why are we here? And the third most important question, perhaps, at the bottom of the page, in the middle, where are we going? What happens to us after we die? Now, I want to answer those questions, and that's kind of our outline. This is our journey. And we're going to start with question one. What's question one? Come on now. Where do we come from? Now, if you look on your chart, you'll see question one is an arrow. Now, I'm trying to help you. That's a huge hint. I'm, I'm kind of pointing to the answer, obvious. I'm giving you the answers. Where do we come from? 
If you look in the upper left-hand corner of your chart, I was taught that far away in a distant part of the universe is a giant star. And the name of that star is called Kolob. If you're filling in the blanks, the star is called Kolob. And Kolob is talked about in the Mormon scriptures. One of their scriptures is called the Pearl of Great Price. And there's a book called the Book of Abraham. Talks about Kolob. I was taught that Kolob is a thousand times larger than our sun. And this is a very important place because this star is nearest the celestial residence of our Heavenly Father. God lives near this star, Kolob. Now, I was told that God's name is Elohim. He's our Heavenly Father. Elohim, I later learned, I took Greek and Hebrew later and found out that that's a Hebrew vocabulary word. But as a Mormon, I was taught this is no mere Hebrew vocabulary. This is the actual personal name of our Heavenly Father. His name is what? Elohim. And Elohim lives near the star Kolob. Now, we have it pictured for you as a world or an earth or a planet nearest the star Kolob in a place that they would call the first estate. Or the other name for it is sometimes called the pre-existence. The pre-existence. So Heavenly Father lives near the star Kolob in a place called the pre-existence. And Heavenly Father lives there along with Heavenly Mother. Now, this is starting to get kind of further and further away from what kind of sounds Christian. In fact, um, in, in our, our, um, our ministry, I'm president of now of a Christian ministry called Watchman Fellowship. And we do research on, on uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of religious movements and, and world religions and cults and occult organizations, controversial doctrines, things like that. And in the whole history, I, I, I never know of any um, church that would say that they're Christian and also believe that there is a heavenly mother. God is married. So you have heavenly father, but you also have his wife, heavenly mother. You've got God and you've got Mrs. God. Now, okay, I know. Okay, I know you're already. I know what you're thinking. Now, wait a minute, James. In the Bible, God's not married. Am I right? It was technically pointed out to me. In the Bible, God's not even dating anybody, much less married to anybody. So, where in the world is this coming from? One of the challenges that you have with groups like this, um, the doctrines are not necessarily coming from the Bible. Now, see, as a Mormon, I was taught that the Bible's God's Word, but there are three other scriptures in addition to the Bible. You have the Bible, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and, of course, famously, you've got the Book of Mormon, all of which are considered Scripture. So you're talking to a Mormon. You say, do you believe the Scriptures? Yes, but they're talking about a bigger collection than what we are. Now, I was taught of these four Scriptures, only one of them has mistakes in it. Can you guess which one has mistakes in it? As a Mormon, they have in their scriptures the articles of faith. When I was in elementary school, uh, all of us, we had to memorize all 13 articles of faith. And one of the articles of faith written by Joseph Smith says this, We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. And there's a period. So this is the book you really, really trust. Now, where are the errors in the Bible, they never give you a list of the errors, but it just puts this vague, okay, yeah, that's in the Bible, but how do I know that might be one of the verses that aren't translated correctly? So there's this vague uncertainty. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the challenge. Anytime you begin to doubt the Bible, 
and you look to any other source, whether it's uh, other scriptures or channeled information or some kind of prophetic uh, utterance, uh, anytime you're, you're, you're vulnerable at that point to believe anything that person tells you. So it, to me, it made sense that God was married. Uh, my, my father was married. Certainly, my heavenly father would be married. God would have to have a wife. And I was taught that heavenly father and heavenly mother have spirit children. The same way that human parents procreate and reproduce and, and, and have offspring, our heavenly parents also have babies. Uh, and God and his wife, heavenly father and heavenly mother, have a lot of children, spirit children. A, a, a whole lot of spirit children. You know, they, I mean, not millions, you know, actually more, like billions. Now, what I'm, we're hitting at right now, we're right now at the very crux of question one. What was question one? Are you ready? Every one of you that I'm looking at right now, Everybody alive, everybody in Memphis right now, everybody around the world, everybody in history past who's ever been born, ever will be born in the future, where did we come from? We came from the planet near the star Kolob. We came from the first estate, from the preexistence. We are those children. We had a life before we came to this earth. We looked a lot like we do right now, except we had spirit bodies rather than tangible fleshly bodies but we are those children. In fact, if I was still a Mormon, I might, I, might, I might ask you this. You ready? Raise your hand. Have you ever had this happen before? So it's uncanny. You meet somebody for the very first time, and it's like you had known them your entire life. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that before. See, you probably knew that person here on the planet near the star Kolob. Okay, she's not convinced. But could you see how... Could you see how some of this might have a familiar ring to it or a deja vu? Or you're thinking, well, is that kind of maybe plausible or possible? But see, these are all the wrong questions to ask. The question this evening is not, is this plausible or possible? The question needs to be, is this biblical? Is this the same gospel that we found in the New Testament? Or do we actually have a different gospel? Now, I was told that very early on, We all knew this. We were up there. We've lost the memory of our first estate, but we were there. It was determined early on that we would need a Savior. And there were two candidates to be Savior of the earth, two candidates, a Democrat and a Republican. (laughs) Just kidding about that part. Okay. But there were two candidates. Two of our older brothers both stepped forward to offer to be the Savior of mankind. Jesus offered to be our Savior, the Savior of the world, but so did his spirit brother named Lucifer. I was taught that Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers along with all of us. We're all brothers and sisters with the same parents in the preexistence. There's a lot more I could say about this part of the, part of the gospel, but, but bottom line, we basically answer question one, where did we come from? And takes us now to question two, why are we here? Now, if you look on your chart, we're here in the bottom left-hand corner. We're here on earth which is also, if you're filling in the blanks, also known as the second estate. The second estate. By the way, one year um, we published a a chart similar to this in one of our magazines, and the woman who did the artwork for us, she put an X by earth and put, you are here. (laughs) 
You ever get lost at the mall? I know I've lost some of you already. You're on earth, okay? Pinch yourself. You're on earth, which is the second estate. But the question is not where are you, why are you? Why are you on earth? Now, this is a more important question than it at first appears. Because according to the Mormon gospel, where were we? In the very presence of God. Why would we ever want to leave the presence of God? I was told that we were all given a choice. We were presented with the restored gospel. And our hearts leapt for joy. And we said, yes, we're willing to leave the presence of God. But we do so at great risk. While we were in the presence of God, we all of us volunteered to take the risk. We're on the away team right now. And we could lose it all. Why would we risk losing eternity? Because the potential upside is virtually, not virtually, it is limitless. Why are we here? Well, I could give you about 40 or 50 essential things that we're here for. But I boiled it down to just nine basic things. Here's what I was taught. This was my, these were my goals as a Mormon. So we're going to start with goal number one. Why are we here? Number one, we're here to receive a body. You must receive a physical body. Before we come to this earth, we only have spirit bodies. You cannot progress with a spirit body. You must gain a physical body. Number one, get a physical body. Now, let me just kind of get a feel. How many of you think you may have already accomplished step one? Raise your hand. It's about half of us? Okay, come on. I'm going I'm to give you all credit for that. Go ahead and just mark it off. You did it. I'm proud of you. Okay, you got a body. That's, that's important. But it's also important to leave the presence of Heavenly Father so that, number two, we can choose to sin, experience sin. Now, Mormons are against sin. If you have Mormon friends or family, you know they try to live, they conscientiously work hard, intentionally live righteous, holy, uh, obedient lives. But in order to progress, we must be put into an environment where we can choose to sin or choose not to sin. Now, we can't do that in the presence of Heavenly Father. There can be no sin in the presence of God. But in the second estate on earth, we can choose to sin. And the problem is we all did choose to sin. So you must, number one, receive a body. Number two, be able to experience sin. Number three, we must have faith in Christ. Now, this certainly is something that we as Christians would agree with our Mormon neighbors. Um, don't we all believe it's essential to the gospel that we have faith in Christ? But let me just tap the brakes for just a moment on that. Words have meaning, and we must be certain that we're speaking the same language. Now, next week, my friend, uh, watchman, Daniel Grissom, is going to be here, and he's going to talk to you about what it was like to be a Jehovah's Witness. Very similar issue. They use all the same words we do. Uh, eternal life, sin, Scripture, uh, heaven. Use, they use our words, but they have different definitions for those words. So when I talk about have faith in Christ, have we already seen maybe a, a little bit difference between the Christ of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Christ we believe in? Well, what are some differences you've already noticed maybe? Huh? Kolob, okay. Uh, do, we, do we believe Jesus is the brother of Lucifer? Don't we believe that Jesus is like the only begotten son? How then are we all begotten sons and daughters? Mormons will sometimes uh, explain that that means he, Jesus is the only begotten in the flesh. We're all begotten by Heavenly Father in the spirit, by, with our spirit bodies, but uniquely Christ was the only one begotten 
by Heavenly Father in the flesh. But he's not the only begotten son in the spirit. We all are. Um, There are many, many differences I could go through with you and talk about um, some of the differences. I was told as a Mormon that the atonement did not take place on the cross. Uh, What Jesus died on the cross, but that was not where salvation took place. You'll never find a cross on any Mormon building, on any Mormon temple. The cross is offensive. It was a murder weapon. Uh, the, the atonement took place at the Garden of Gethsemane when Christ agonized and, and sweat like blood. That was the atonement, not the cross. Um, I was taught, here's another big difference. The early Mormon apostles taught, I was taught, this is something that's not emphasized in recent years, but I was taught, and the early Mormon apostles taught, that Jesus also was married, that Jesus married Mary, her sister Martha, and Mary Magdalene, three wives of Jesus. Uh, the Book of Mormon teaches that after Christ, uh, Third Nephi, after Christ dies on the cross and is resurrected, Jesus comes here to America to preach the gospel to the Native Americans, uh, to the Indians, who are actually Jewish, according to the Book of Mormon. I, I can't even have time to go develop that, but, but bottom line is there are many, many differences. In Second Corinthians, the Bible, Second Corinthians chapter 11, the Scriptures warn about those who would preach another Jesus, not the same Jesus we're talking about. So I I believe that it's not the same Jesus, but I don't want you to take my word for it. Let me take you to the top Mormon himself, the prophet, seer, revelator, president of the Mormon church. Recent, he died, I think, about nine years ago. I want to take you to Gordon B. Hinckley. President Hinckley said this about Jesus. He said, in bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, President Hinckley, he's the top Mormon, President Hinckley spoke of those outside the church who say, Latter-day Saints do not believe in the traditional Christ. Listen to his answer. No, I don't. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. Now, most of our Mormon friends and neighbors probably don't get this. He does. But when I was a Mormon, if you said, do you believe in Jesus? I would say, yes. If you asked me, is it the same Jesus? I would have said, yes. And and I would have thought, as most Mormons, I think, would think, that if you believe in Jesus, it really doesn't matter if you're you're Presbyterian or Lutheran or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or Buddhist or Muslim. We're talking about the same Jesus. But the prophet of the church knows differently. And he says, no, I'm not talking about the traditional Christ. So that's, that's the Jesus we're talking about. And we could, we could go some other, show some other differences as well. Let's go back on our list. Number three, we must have faith in Christ. Number four, we have to have repentance. We must repent of our sin. It's essential for salvation and forgiveness that we have sufficient repentance. Number five, baptism is essential for salvation. However, for the baptism to be valid, you must be baptized by one who has the proper authority, meaning a Mormon who holds the priesthood. If you're baptized by anyone who's not a Mormon elder, your baptism's not valid. It has no saving ability to it. You've got to be baptized by a Mormon. You also must receive the Holy Ghost. This is also done when a Mormon who has the priesthood lays hands on you and bestows the Holy Ghost upon you following confirmation and baptism. Now, this whole section I'm dealing with right now is what they would call the first principles in ordinances of the gospel. Faith, repentance, baptism, gift of the Holy Ghost. But you also must, um, number seven, you, you really have to obey all the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Obedience is essential for the blessing of salvation. 
You must obey all the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Now, I'm taking that number seven from a number of sources, but uh, just to document for you, uh, this is coming from another of the articles of faith written by the prophet Joseph Smith that every Mormon child memorizes. Um, Article three says this. In fact, let's just do this as a test. Um, All the articles of faith are worded to where they almost sound Christian if you just read them real quickly. But I want to slow down a little bit and think about what we're reading As I read this to you, raise your hand if you see a problem with what Joseph Smith is saying compared to the Bible. You ready for the test? Here's what he says. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Yeah, most of us caught that, yeah. Does the Bible say that we're saved by our obedience to laws? No, we were not saved by our obedience for for a number of reasons, Um, you know, one obvious reason, we're not very obedient. I mean, that's one reason right there. Um, did you know there are 613 laws just in the Old Testament? How many of you know them all? See, we don't even know all the laws. So we're not saved by obedience to law. The law has a purpose, but the purpose is not to give us salvation. So Joseph Smith said we're saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances. But what does the Bible say? Let's compare this with Romans chapter 3, verse 20. The Apostle Paul says, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So according to the Bible, how many people get saved by obeying the law? How many would that be? Yeah, no flesh is going to be less than 10. That's going to be like zero. Nobody. I'm looking for zero. That's the answer I'm looking for. Zero. Nobody. No flesh. Well, then what's the purpose of the law? Well, look look at the the end of verse 20. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, the law is good. The law is great. But the reason the law is so good is because the law reflects the holiness and righteousness of God. This is God's standard of holiness. But the purpose of the law is not to make us right with God. It's kind of like the law works like this. It's kind of like if you're ever fall, have you ever done this before? You like hurt your elbow, hurt your shoulder. It's about one o'clock in the morning. It's hurting so bad you can't even sleep. And finally, you give in. And where do you go? ER, right? And after about four or five hours, right, they take you back there and they take a picture, right? It's called an X-ray. And then finally, the X-ray technician comes out. The doctor comes out, and they put the X-ray up on the. Um, you seen that before? You had they put the turn the light on, right? And they show you that little line, right? They say, that's the problem. See that little line? You've got a fracture. The x-ray shows you how bad your arm is. Now, what if you were to say to that doctor, hey, how many more x-rays till I'm healed? You have misunderstood the purpose of an x-ray. It's, it's for diagnosis. It's not for uh, healing. It has, it has no curative power to it. The purpose of the law is to show us how unrighteous we are. To show us that we need a Savior. But the law is not your Savior. Um, The gospel is not good news about laws. Jesus is your Savior. He's the one that fulfills the law. He offers the salvation as a free gift. So um, let's go back to our list. Obey all the laws. And number eight, become temple worthy. The Mormon church is growing so rapidly around the world. They're building one or two new Mormon churches every day to keep up with the growth around the world. They currently have over 82,000 full-time missionaries sharing the gospel door-to-door around the world, over 130 countries. Um, 
The, temp, the, the Mormon churches are open to the public. Visitors are welcome. They have a special class if you're a visitor called an investigator's class they'll take you to. Very friendly people. But there's another building that's not open to the public. It's called the temple. And visitors are not welcome there. It's off limits. And in fact, interestingly, even most Mormons are not allowed to go into a Mormon temple. In order to gain access, you've got to do number eight. You've got to show, you've got to demonstrate that you are indeed temple-worthy. Not just a Mormon, a temple-worthy Latter-day Saint. Part of that process means that you must successfully pass through two interviews. One with your bishop, which is like your, kind of like your pastor, local leader. And if you pass that interview, then you have a second interview with the stake president, which is his supervisor. And they're going to ask you a series of very revealing questions. And you cannot lie. Don't look at me that way. You cannot lie. The Lord will know. And they're going to ask you questions. What I'd I'd like to do if I can, I'd just like to be your bishop and kind of take you through part of that process. You you ready to do that? So um, let's do it. I'm going to start with the easy questions, and you can just raise your hand. Um, I'll start with the word of wisdom questions. How many of you, raise your hand if you drink coffee or tea, coffee or tea, you're all disqualified, right? We don't even get to question two. You're all off the list right there. Either beverages will disqualify you from going into the temple. Coffee, tea, use of tobacco products, alcoholic beverages, all disqualifying. These are word of wisdom offenses. You pass that, they're going to ask you questions like, do you have any anti-Mormon literature in your home or office? Or do you have associations with or sympathies for apostates or apostate organizations? If I'm your friend or your supporter of, of the ministry of Watchman Fellowship, probably not going to go well for you in your interview. Then they're going to ask you another question. They will always ask you this question. It's on the list. But on this question, I'm going to ask you not to raise your hand. (laughs) But they're going to ask you, and the question is this. Have you given 10% of your income to the church? They have the records right there, by the way. Now, if you answer no, it's, it's not the end of the world. If you say no, it's not the end of the world because they'll just ask you the follow-up question. Would you like to make a settlement at this time? <laughs> now, if you answer no to that question, it is the end of the world, uh, at least your spiritual life. You are barred from the temple, which affects where you're going to spend eternity. Your best friend's getting married in the temple. Guess what? You stay in the parking lot. You cannot go in and observe that because you're not temple-worthy. So... If you are temple-worthy, that's number eight, that takes you to the highlight. We finally made it to number nine, temple ordinances. Now, what I'm going to talk about right now is very secretive. It's considered sacred to the Mormons. They are horrified uh, if information about what happens in the temple gets out. There's nothing like immorality. You hear things, people say, oh, there's all kind of sexual immorality. That's not true. That's not true. There are certain rituals that take place. There are certain special handshakes. There's certain, um, I mean, in generic terms, two of the important things that happen in the temple are baptism for the dead and also marriage and sealing to your spouse for time and all eternity that has to take place in the temple. Um, the, the, these, are, these are essential for salvation. Now, I, I debated that we talked about whether we should do this or not. Uh, I have a video clip, highly controversial, banned on YouTube, uh, from the HBO special Big Love. Uh, Tom Hanks, executive producer. This is about a, 
a, a drama about a polygamous group within the Mormon church that secretly practicing polygamy. And one of the things that happened a couple of seasons ago is there was a full costume, very accurate rendition of a portion of the what they call the veil ceremony. This is highly secretive stuff. And Mormons are very offended. I don't think we have any Latter-day Saints here. If we have any Latter-day Saints here, you let me know. I won't show it. If you're, if you're any Latter-day Saints here, I won't show it. Okay. I'm assuming that's agreed. How many of you would like me to show it? Okay. That's uh, unanimous. Opposed by the same sign. Okay. We're going to go with it. What we're going to do is you're going to see a portion of what happens. about a two-hour ceremony. You're going to see a couple of minutes. Uh, this is from HBO Big Love. The setup here is this is um, this woman is wife number one. She has two sister wives. She's secretly practicing polygamy. The Mormon Church itself has not allowed polygamy since the 1890s. It's the splinter groups that do it. But there are people who are still Latter Day Saint Mormons who st- who who are doing it, and the Mormon Church, if they catch you, they'll excommunicate you. This is her last time. Her mother doesn't know. Nobody knows. But her bishop has just found out, and she thinks this might be her last chance to go to the temple. This is what happens, a portion of what happens in the temple. Let's watch this video. O God, hear the words of my mouth. O God, hear the words of my mouth. O God, hear the words of my mouth. What is that? The second token of the Melchizedek priesthood. Has it a name? It has. Will you give it to me? I cannot. I have not yet received it. For this purpose, I have come to converse with the Lord through the veil. You shall receive it through the veil. This is the name of the token. Health in the navel, marrow in the bones, strength in the loins and in the sinews, power in the priesthood be upon me and upon my posterity through all generations of time and throughout all eternity. What is that? The second token of the Melchizedek priesthood, the patriarchal grip, the sure sign of the nail. Has it a name? It has. Will you give it to me? I will through the veil. Health in the navel, marrow in the bones, strength in the loins and in the sinews. Power in the priesthood be upon me and upon my posterity through all generations of time and throughout all eternity. What is wanted? Eve, having conversed with the Lord through the veil, desires to enter his presence. Let her enter.
just a little foretaste of what eternity will look like. This is what binds us to each other. <laughs> Let's just sit for a moment and soak up this delicious feeling. Well, that gives you a portion of it. Uh, the patrons, as they go through, are given a special kind of under, undergarment. These types of garment are to be worn underneath your clothing outside the temple for the rest of your life. Uh, you're getting, uh, the, you, you see the green apron. I don't know if you can tell from the video. Green has it fig leaves embroidered on it. This is representative of the, of the apron worn by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, they're dressed in total white from head to toe. The men would be the same, white Shirt, white coat, white tie, white socks, white pants, white belt, white everything. Mormons are also buried in these same temple clothing. Uh, and this is an important kind of the highlight of your, of your experience as a Latter-day Saint, to be temple worthy. One of the things that happens in the temple is to be married to your spouse for all eternity. Any other marriage, even for a good Mormon, if you're married outside the temple, if you're not temple worthy, you're married outside the temple... Your marriage is till death do you part. You're not, it's not eternal. Only a marriage in the temple can be sealed where you're going to be married for all eternity. Um, other things happen there as well. But let's go to our final question, where are we going? I was told, I believe that after we died, everybody goes immediately to one of two places. But it's not heaven, it's not hell. You immediately go to one of two places. One's called paradise, and the other is called spirit prison, either paradise or spirit prison. But it virtually works this way. Only worthy Latter-day Saints go to paradise. Everyone else goes to spirit prison. However, spirit prison uh, is not the end of the, rope, end of the road for you because if you die and go to spirit prison and you've never had an opportunity to hear the restored gospel, to be taught the restored gospel, Oh, for, for example, uh, it's a practical question. How about people who lived and died in the 1500s? Could they have heard this gospel? No, remember, there was none for all those centuries until Joseph. They had no chance. Or the 1600s, or the 1700s, or the 1200s. Nobody had a chance. Even today, you may live in a part of the world where the Mormon missionaries had knock, knocked on your door. You don't have an opportunity. Or maybe they did knock on your door, but you pretended that no one was home. How did we know you were doing that? Okay, that's right. If you haven't heard this, if you die and go to spirit prison, I was told that Mormon missionaries from paradise can come visit you in spirit prison. They can share the gospel with you. You can actually believe after death and have your sins forgiven. However, you still have to be baptized by one having the proper authority. Well, how are you going to baptize somebody who's already dead? This is where the doctrine of baptism for the dead comes in. The Mormon church has the world's largest genealogical library. 
literally millions and millions of names of dead people. And what happens is, uh, part of what happens is those names are all systematically baptized living Mormons for dead people. I, I did this in the Salt Lake City Temple in Utah myself. I remember walking through these beautiful hallways, and in this room, my first time in the temple in Salt Lake City, there's this gold baptismal font, and underneath are 12 golden oxen. And I remember walking down those steps into the waters of baptism there in the Salt Lake City Temple, but not to be baptized for me. I'd already been baptized. You can, a, a living person can be baptized anywhere, any, just by underwater, anywhere there's water. But the dead can only be baptized in a temple. I took on the name of a number of dead people to go down and be baptized. And so the officiator would say, I baptize you, James Walker, for and on behalf of Frederick Jones. That was, I, I, I baptized for him. And he immersed me in the water and brought me up. And I was convinced had the dead man, Frederick Jones, received the Mormon gospel in spirit prison, he then could go up to paradise. So you get to the spirit prison, right? You still got to go to the next one. I'll show you. So you then could go up to paradise from spirit prison if, because I had been baptized for him. Now, the problem is we don't know who accepts and who doesn't accept. So the Mormons baptized for everyone because we don't know which ones accepted and which ones didn't. So virtually everyone you know has been baptized for the dead. If they've been dead two years or more, family members, relatives of yours, it's already been happened for your. You can go actually go to the genealogical center. You'll find out what temple and the date the baptism was done. All the Catholic popes, uh, all the um, Christian reformers, Martin Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, they've all been baptized for the dead. Um, they also do marriage for the dead. Living Mormon couples will go through a marriage ceremony standing in for the dead couples in the temple. And so you get married the first time for yourself, and, you're, and the, but the a subsequent visit you're getting baptized for these dead people. So anybody that you can imagine, uh, Adolf Hitler has been baptized for the dead and sealed to Eva Braun. Elvis Presley, if we're here in Memphis, Elvis Presley has been baptized for the dead and sealed. So anybody you can think of. Now, even though if you make it to paradise, it's not the end of the story because eventually after the millennial reign of Christ, I was taught that virtually everyone ends up going to one of three different heavens. Or you might think of it as three kind of levels or compartments of heaven. The bottom heaven is represented by a star, and it's called the telestial kingdom. Think of the star. The light's not that bright, but it's a twinkle of a star. I was taught that this heaven was everything you could imagine heaven to be beautiful, majestic, glorious. But I had no desire to go to heaven. Not not that heaven when I was a Latter-day Saint. Because there's a higher heaven than the telestial kingdom represented by the light of the brighter moon. And that's called the terrestrial kingdom. But I had no desire to go there either. What I was aiming at, my goal was to be worthy to go to the celestial kingdom, represented by the brightest light, the sun. Sun, moon, stars. You have three degrees of glory, three levels of heaven. Now, it basically works this way. I'm greatly simplifying, for the sake of time. Only worthy Latter-day Saints go to the celestial kingdom. Or, remember, there's, a next, there's another way to get there. If you accept the Mormon gospel in spirit prison and have your works done vicariously for you, it's possible that you can go to the celestial kingdom. The bottom kingdom, is fascinating, is reserved for wicked people. If you're a murderer, lawless, hate God, don't believe anything, you get to go to the bottom heaven, which is much better than earth. The middle heaven is for spiritual people who are not Latter-day Saints or not worthy Latter-day Saints. So if you're a devout Jew... If you're a, 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 um, 
a good Muslim, if you're a, a decent Christian, you know, you can go to the middle heaven. There is one other place you need to know about, bottom, middle of the page. There is a place called outer darkness. You don't want to go there. It's not heaven. Uh, but I was taught that virtually no one goes there. Satan goes there and, and um, uh, demons will go there. But it's possible for sons of perdition. To be a son of perdition, you must first be a Mormon and then leave. So uh, this is a religion that everybody's guaranteed a heaven unless you join the Mormon church. Then it's a possibility you might mess up at that point. But I was trying to aim at that celestial kingdom. But even the celestial kingdom is divided into three categories. In order to make it the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, you must be worthy and your spouse must be worthy also. You have to be married. No single people allowed. How many of you are single this evening? My question for you, do you like anybody? You just need to plan this out. You need to think about this because there's no celestial salvation without a spouse. But your spouse must be worthy too. So, now you can be a servant or slave in one of the lower levels, but to make it to the highest, you must be married and your spouse must be worthy. This is what I was aiming at. If I could make it, I was taught to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. This, this is one of the biggest mysteries and most important doctrine I'm about to tell you. Remember question number one formed an arrow from the upper right-hand corner of your page to the upper left-hand corner? If I was able to achieve the highest degree, and if I was married and my spouse was worthy also... I was taught that we could achieve at that point something that they call celestial exaltation. I then would become a heavenly father and my wife would become a heavenly mother. We would have our own earth that we would be heavenly father and heavenly mother over. And we would start having spirit babies. Billions of them. We would populate that earth with our own spirit offspring who would worship me as their heavenly father The whole system starts all over again. Some of our children also, all of them have the potential, and some of them will achieve celestial exaltation. And interestingly, the whole system works in reverse. I was taught that our Heavenly Father, before he was God over planet Earth, he himself achieved celestial exaltation with his wife. But before that, our Heavenly Father was once a man on another Earth. And when he was a man on another Earth, he had a God that he worshipped. But that God, too, had once been a man who had a God over him who was once a man. One of the Mormon prophets, Lorenzo Snow, explained the Mormon gospel, the restored gospel, this way, the famous couplet that every Mormon child learns. He says it this way, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. God was once a human like us. We have the potential. We are gods in embryo. And if you're worthy you too can achieve celestial exaltation. This is what I was taught as a Latter-day Saint. Now, I have to, I have to ask you, Galatians chapter, uh, Galatians chapter 1, is this the same gospel found in the New Testament, or do we have a different gospel? I won't take you through it. Yeah, that's what I say. We have a Winnebago, don't we? If you look on the back of your chart, we have provided for you the biblical answer to the three questions, where do we come from, why we... I won't take you through them right now, but this is a great little study aid. The Bible already answers the questions, where do we come from, why are we here, where are we going. We did not, uh, we did not come from the planet Kolob, nor can we become gods one day. Um, now, I didn't know this, but I had some Christian friends who cared about me. I could tell you... Uh, you know, I could give you a lot of examples, but let me just give you one and, and, and kind of wrap this. I want to have some time for questions here in a little bit. 
Let me tell you about the first Christian to ever share the gospel with me effectively. It was actually back when I was in seventh grade. I had a friend named Tommy in seventh grade. And Tommy asked me one day, he's my best friend. He said, tell me again, what's the name of your church? What church do you go to? I said, Tommy, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He said, that's good. Now, it took Tommy a week or two, but he comes back a little later. He said, James, you're a Mormon. (laughs) I said, okay, well, yeah, that's another name. That's another name for our church. He said, "Uh, you believe in a different God than we do. I said, no, Tommy, we believe in God and Jesus and the Bible exactly like you. We just have a little additional information. He said, no, I looked you up in the encyclopedia. I said, we're in the encyclopedia? What does it say? He said, well, it says your church teaches that God, before he was God, he was once a man, and you can become a God one day. I said, no, Tommy, we believe you can only become a God only if you're worthy and obedient. Well, we believe that the same as your church. He said, our church doesn't believe that. Our church believes there's only one God. I said, yeah, yeah, one God for our earth. But you know, in the universe, there's other earths and other gods. And Tommy said, no, we believe there's only one true God. All the other gods are false gods. I said, Tommy, who told you that? I've never heard that before. He said, it's in the Bible. Now, here's a seventh grader. He shows me on his grandmother's porch, I still remember. He shows me Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10. And Isaiah, uh, God says in Isaiah, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. And my friend Tommy said, James, if there's no God formed before God, how could God once have once been a man? If there's no God after, how can you become a God yourself one day? I didn't know the answer to that question. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, maybe that's one of, I, I didn't say it to him, but I'm thinking maybe that's one of the mistakes in the Bible. But I still remember. The, the Word of God's very powerful. I still remember that day. I had other Christian friends that God placed in my life that showed me some of the 4,000 changes in the Book of Mormon. That was devastating to me. The Book of Mormon had been, has been revised in over 4,000 places. I did not know that until they showed me. I had some Christian friends who discussed with me some of the prophecies of Joseph Smith that failed. But the final thing to me was not that. That was important. But the final straw for me was the gospel of grace. I never had that assurance that my sins had been forgiven. I was trying, I was striving, but when you serve God by works, you never know if you've done enough. And I I came to the place where I realized that my Christian friends had told me that we're not saved by our works, we're saved by grace. And uh, it's a gift from God. And I put my faith and trust in Christ alone as Savior when I was 21 years old. And uh, I now have that assurance that my sins have been forgiven. Not because of how good James Walker is, but because of how good Jesus Christ is. He paid the price for me. I never knew that as a Mormon. So if you have have any Mormon friends, Latter-day Saint friends, please be that kind of friend to them. Uh, Please be a Tommy in, in their life. Now, my friend Tommy never knew the whole rest of that story. I lost track of Tommy shortly after the ninth grade. And Tommy would have never known had it not been one year for a birthday present for me. Many, many years later, one year my wife decided, you know what I want to give for a birthday present? I'm going to find Tommy. She hunted him down. I don't know how she did. She found him. Got, him, got him on the phone for me. You remember your Mormon friend back in seventh grade? He's a Christian now. And he has a whole ministry, Watchman Fellowship, reaching out to people of other faiths and religion. Remember that Bible verse? Remember in the grandmother's porch? He tells that story to other people. You were the hero, Tommy. 
And anything good that comes out of the ministry of Watchman Fellowship or the ministry of James, you're going to have a part of that. So I want to encourage you to be a Tommy. You say, well, James, I don't have all the information. I don't have all the knowledge. I know a Mormon, but how do you even start a conversation? Hey, Tommy didn't have all the resources. What did Tommy have? A King James Bible and a set of encyclopedias? I'll ask you this. Are you smarter than a seventh grader? Let me just ask you that way, okay? But we can do it. I've got some tools and resources, I want, but I want to encourage you. It's really not so much about the tools. It's about loving people, not bashing or attacking, not winning the argument. You can win the argument and lose the person. Caring, being there. At, when, you, when you earn the right, asking that appropriate question, being willing to listen as well as talk. Let me share, you about some, share with you about some tools that we have available for you. I believe in the resources and tools, very important. Uh, have you ever heard the saying, if the only tool in your toolbox is a, is a hammer, everything starts looking like a nail? Have you noticed that? Well, sometimes you need the right tool for the job. One of the things I want to tell you about, I'm real excited. Our ministry, uh, 20 years ago, had been producing these four-page, we call them profiles. Every other month for 20 years, we produced a four-page fact sheet on a different new religious movement, cult, occult group, controversial doctrine, practice, or spiritual leader. Now, you've got one in your notebook on Mormonism. You have one for next week on Jehovah's Witnesses. But we've done A to Z, everything from astrology to Zen Buddhism, anything you can imagine. The whole notebook's available on our website of the ones we've done in the past. But you can get the new ones for free. And to do that, you can go online at watchman.org, click that you'd like the free subscription, or you can fill out the back of the card here. So go to watchman.org. Um, not Watchtower. Don't go to that one. That's a different, altogether different one. We'll learn more about that next week. Watchman.org. We'd love to give you a free subscription. We also have a book that I've written with the help of my staff. We worked 10 years on this. We went through every one of our files back in Texas, and we reduced it down to the key facts on over 1,700 religions in America. Everything you can imagine. Uh, it's a quick paragraph on different things. Uh, I wanted to tell you just about one here, just because of where we are right now in Memphis. I thought, thought you might be interested in this one. This is, uh, see if I can find it here. Here we go. It's the um, first Presbyterian church of Elvis the Divine. This is a, a religion that believes that uh, Elvis is God, and uh, he has not left the building. Um, so you, you, there's everything you can imagine out there, uh, from serious religions, world religions, to uh, kind of uh, strange. We have, we have a, a, probably about a dozen UFO religions, religions based on uh, believed, uh, believed encounters with uh, aliens, um, so the book is, is very, very helpful for you. I think it's a quick place to go if you have a friend or family member, somebody you're talking to, a classmate, and they say, uh, oh, I'm starting to read the Kabbalah. So what's Kabbalah? Quick answer right there. So the book's helpful. Uh, we also have four DVDs and a way to get the book for free, if you like, with a four-DVD set. If you look on the back of your chart, we tell you more about that. Uh, we have a debate that I did uh, with Khalil Meek, the president of the Muslim Legal Fund of America. It's a two-hour debate, uh, which is true, Islam or Christianity. We're friends. I just had lunch again with Khalil uh, about uh, six weeks ago. 
but it's an intense debate on the subject, what really happened, Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. What are our similarities? What are our differences? We have a, a kind of an overview on deception called the marks of a cult. It's interesting, when you look at all the, the hundreds of different counterfeit uh, Christian groups out there, really they're doing the same thing. Add, subtract, multiply, divide. Add to God's Word, new Scripture. Subtract from who Jesus really is. Multiply all the things you need to do in order to have your sins forgiven. And fourth, divide their followers' loyalty by saying you'll never be loyal to God unless you're loyal to our group. Add, subtract, multiply, divide. It's an entire documentary that we produced uh, with the help of, um, we helped produce with the um, apologetics group and um, finally, we have, a, we have a DVD on Jehovah's Witnesses, classic one uh, that's very well done. And I want to show you a little clip of this before I take some questions. I have a debate that I did with the um, head of the Mormon Church Seminary Program in North Texas. Seminary and, and LDS Institute, their, their university program. This is Elder Joe Evans. Joe Evans and I have been friends for a couple of years. We've been witnessing to each other, I guess you could say. And uh, Joe Evans is a, a, an employee of the Mormon Church. He is uh, head of this um, a graduate of BYU. We did a two-hour debate, time debate, on the question, uh, is Mormonism really Christian? So I just want to show you. I've got maybe a three- or four-minute little clip. You, you want to see that, kind of see what that was like? And I'll tell you how this might work in a witnessing situation. Let's watch this. I keep mentioning, we're members, uh, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's the name of our church. We believe that if a person says, I believe, and their actions don't coordinate with that behavior, that it's not true. The devils also believe and they tremble. But let me just say this, the whole time I was a Latter-day Saint, I never had an assurance that my sins had been forgiven. I don't believe for one second, trust me, and I feel the truthfulness in your heart, I do not believe anything I do saves me. But as a Latter-day Saint, I, I think I understood correctly what I was being taught. So a young 14-year-old boy went into the a grove and he got on his knees and he prayed. And he received a visitation from our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. I believe that's true. I was also clearly taught in the scriptures, by the writings of the apostles, prophets, general authorities, that what Christ did on the cross was not sufficient to save me. Do I just feel like this massive weight? Oh, I can't be perfect. No. Do you know why? Because I do what it's told. I read the scriptures every day. And I, and I get on my knees every morning and night. Nobody in the Mormon church who's doing those things is feeling that weight and is feeling, oh, I just can't do it. He wasn't saying that Baptists are bad, the Protestants are He was saying that Joseph Smith was going around having all these people tell him, you join our church, you're going to hell. And I can see for myself that the Bible has been translated correctly. I can have confidence in the Bible. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Book of Mormon, uh, or rather the Pearl of Great Price Book of Abraham, uh, we can demonstrate, demonstrable, 
that not Joseph Smith didn't get one word right. For example, Joseph Smith took one Egyptian character that looks like three wavy lines. Joseph Smith translated that one Egyptian character into some 70-plus words with eight or nine proper nouns. One word, one symbol. Now, the Egyptologists tell us that that symbol means water or pool of water. Joseph Smith gets a, a chunk of chapter one of the book of Abraham from that one symbol. And I just want to first say that everything that, 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 that James said is logical and reasonable. So I think it's ironic that, that Joseph Smith, the same one who's telling us the Bible's not translated correctly, apparently did not get one word right in his whole translation. I can take all those points. Don't worry about them. Worry about what's in your heart. And I could catch in the corner of my eye, and he's rapidly writing down, he's got to come up and give it. And he has the benefit of being after, which is awesome in this kind of situation. But... <laughs> That I know maybe it is an unfair advantage that I get to come after you. However, also I've invited Joe to come back to my class at Criswell College. I'm hoping this is something that is a continuing dialogue. And you know what? If you could open up two brains and get, okay, this is what's actually happening, and then there, this is what it says, you're going to get to something different. I've been married 11 years, and one thing I know for certain is that what I say and what my wife hears isn't always exactly the same. <laughs> and a reason comes from God. And our ability to reason, uh, the Mormons say the glory of God is intelligence. I think there's a lot of truth to that. So I don't want to be unreasonable. I don't want to be anti-reason in my faith. Reason alone, however, is not inerrant. It will never get you a full revelation of God. And the heart, too. Is, the Bible says the heart's deceitful. Who can know it? That's a good question. If this repeats itself, this law of eternal progression, if we become gods and goddesses and we're populating our own earths, are we going to have to have a new Jesus for our earth? That's never spelled out in any of the literature, uh, but the implication certainly is there. I, could, I think it would be fair to say that that's possibly true. Uh, we don't know how much of an exact duplication each one of the successions of deities before our Heavenly Father and, of course, what will be afterwards as well. But that's a good question. Along those same lines, there's a huge philosophical problem here. And it's called infinite regression. That's, a, that's impossibility. Anytime you have a cause and effect, um, you have to have a, a first cause or a prime cause, an uncaused cause. If Heavenly Father used to be a man who had a God over him, who used to be a man, where did the first God come from? The Mormons have no answer for that. You have infinite regress, which is a philosophical impossibility. Uh, every effect has to have a sufficient cause. Anybody else? Another question? Yes, ma'am. Okay. I've heard that before. Okay, the question was, she had somebody, Mormon friends, talking about the celestial kingdom and, and saying that um, in the celestial kingdom, it would appear that, uh, that if you're a woman and make it that far, you might be perpetually pregnant for all eternity. Well, I would say most Mormons would never characterize it that way. We don't know if it's even a nine-month gestation period. We don't know how all that works. I would assume there's no morning sickness in the celestial kingdom. Uh, but yes, you do have the idea that for every being on this planet represents Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother having a spirit child. Uh, and so you, just the, the, the numbers are astronomical, mind-boggling to, to think about that. So uh, again, this is, this is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, I was in a church sharing this, and I, I, I almost wrapped up, and this one lady, she couldn't wait any longer. She said, I've got one, one quick question. Is this what we believe, or is this what they believe? This is what they believe. This is not what we believe, or I have some free material for you. 
if that's the case. So uh, uh, it is different, very different. Yes, another question? What is it like to leave? Do you lose friends? I, I think, you know, to some degree that's going to happen in any religion. You, you leave a good, healthy, Bible-centered church, you might lose some, a few friends at, at the same time. But it is different in a religion like what we're talking about, high-demand religion like this. Um, I went through 10 years where my father, and all, uh, my father and I had a conversation only twice during 10 years. There, were more, there was more than just me leaving the church, but, but there was a plan for my life in which uh, when I did not go on my mission for two years, it was the end of that plan. And uh, the last few years of my father's life was, better, was much better relationship, but we went through that 10-year stretch. Um, if you're in business, you live in Utah or Idaho, um, you probably, it's going to be very difficult to get a job or, or have a business if they know that you've left the church. Um, it's not as bad for a Mormon leaving as it is for Jehovah's Witness. I'd be sure uh, to ask Daniel about this. I mean, there's an actual trial that takes place uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses. There was one for me, too, an excommunication trial. But if you're disfellowshipped as a Jehovah's Witness, no one is allowed to talk with you uh, who's, a, who's a baptized witness, including, in most cases, even family members. My father was allowed to talk to me. He chose not to. So it's a good, good question. By the way, all of my family except my father came to Christ one by one. And uh, my, my father passed away Latter-day Saint, but I did get a chance to share the gospel with him. And you, know, you never know those last, those last three months what happened and what may have gone on. And I, I was just felt privileged to be able to share the gospel, and he was willing to listen to me at that time. Any other questions? Yes. To do the baptism for the dead, I've been in the temple in Salt Lake City. It's really weird. Um, it's unusual in the sense that um, what happens in the temple uh, is nothing like a worship ceremony. Now, the Mormons, will, they have an open house. When a, when a new temple opens for the first time, there's going to be one opening in the suburb of Indiana, uh, in, in Indianapolis, Indiana. There's only about 140 functioning temples in the entire world. The new one's going in there. When they open them up, you can go inside for silent tours for like usually about three weeks. Then they close them. They tear out all the carpet and furniture, go back and restore everything and dedicate it. Then nobody can go in at that point. It's dedicated temple. So it is open. It's nothing like anything that happens in the Bible. So it is true in the Bible that there were portions of the temple that were off limits to the general public. There was a court of the Gentiles, right, in the Bible temple. There was a place that only the men could go into part of it. There was a, well, there's one place, the Holy of Holies, only one guy can go in, the high priest on Yom Kippur. But it wasn't secret. The Bible has everything with, with minute detail of what happens in the, both the tabernacle and in the temple uh, in the Bible. It's no, anybody can read it. It's there for you to read. The Mormon ceremony is not, secret, is not, is not uh, open. It is secret ceremony. And what takes place in that temple is nothing like uh, what took place in Solomon's temple or Herod's temple or the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. Nothing like that at all. So we, we know what happened in the Bible temple. We know what's happening in the Mormon temple as well. By the way, if, you're, if you want to know more about the temple, um, there's a guy who's a Mormon, uh, not a very good Mormon. He's a Mormon, apparently still has a temple recommend, the little card that allows you in to the temple. And he's gone in with a hidden camera. It's on YouTube now. Not a reenactment like I showed you. It's the actual Salt Lake Temple happening. 
His name is New. His name on uh, on YouTube is New Name Noah, all one word, New Name Noah. And uh, if you want to see it, it's uh, the internet is uh, there's no secrets on the internet. Good question. Is there is there some kind of correlation between Freemasonry and Mormonism? Yes, Joseph Smith was a Mason. The largest lodge uh, in the state of Illinois was the Nauvoo Lodge under Joseph Smith's leadership. Uh, there were several things that the Mormons did that went crossways with the other Masons in Illinois. And that the Masonic Lodge of Joseph Smith was declared to be false or clandestine, they would call it. So Joseph Smith just took a lot of Masonic ritual and brought it into the Mormon temple. Uh, until 1990, every Mormon that went through the temple had to swear an oath where they would put their thumb under their left ear and draw it quickly across the right ear, a blood oath that promising not to reveal any of the secrets, handshakes or anything upon penalty of death even. What I, in fact, what I'm just telling you is that that would have been a death penalty right there. You'd be willing to die rather than reveal any of those secrets like what I'm telling you right now. So um, in 1990, the Mormon church uh, uh, radically changed the temple ceremony and removed quite a bit of the Masonic element. The, the, the veil ceremony, part of that is also from the Masons as well. But Joseph Smith borrowed from other sources, some from the Masons, some from the Bible, some from other sources as well. Okay. Yeah, so there's some do's and don'ts. Um, when the missionaries come to your door, they all, it always seems that the worst possible time. Is it like you have that experience for me? It's always the worst possible time. I'm already running late. Um, but some do's and don'ts. Uh, don't be rude. Or mean. Remember, these are not our enemies. They are our. Uh, 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 these are people we're trying to reach for the gospel. And except for God's grace, you could be that Mormon, right? So uh, be kind, be gracious to them. Um, do share your testimony with them. As, as, if you, every one of us ought to be able in about three minutes to share our story. This was my life before. Uh, my sins were forgiven. This is how I came to Christ and received forgiveness. This is my new life in Christ now. So share that with them. It's very powerful. And pray for them. Get their name. Um, you know, they'll have it on their name badges. Uh, get their names and start praying for them. So um, that's some quick do's and don'ts uh, when you have the uh, missionaries knocking at your door. Um, if you have Mormon friends, one of, one of the things we found, I'll just share this real quickly with you. I know I'm about out of time here. Uh, very quickly. Um, we just went, got back from our mission trip in, in uh, Utah, and uh, I hope some of you can join us next year. Eight days. We have two days of training. We have Temple Square historical stuff we go see. But there's this huge outdoor pageant with tens of thousands of Mormons there reenacting. Uh, they have a drama, a play, where they reenact Joseph Smith finding the gold plates and the angel Moroni and the first vision we talked about. All that's reenacted. And um, cast of hundreds. And we go out there. And about two or three hours before the pageant begins, there's great conversations you can have. We train you how to do this. And uh, one of the things that we've been using lately that we've seen some really good results with Mormons, Mormons do not understand salvation by grace. And so they, they're, they're critical of us of that. They're, oh, you Christians, you think all you have to do is just uh, say a prayer, believe in Jesus, then you can go live however you want to and kill people or whatever, you know. And so we, we believe that you're, you heard Joe talking about this a little bit, that your actions have to make you a Christian, not just what you believe. And so what we've been doing kind of lately a lot uh, at Manti, at, uh, at our Utah outreach, is saying, no, 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 we, we believe that, that works are very important for salvation. In fact, we believe that good works are essential for salvation. They always go, 
I thought that was my line. It always kind of throws them off. Oh, you, I thought you didn't believe in works. Oh, no, works are essential for salvation. But the difference is we don't believe it's our works. It's the finished work of Christ, but it's essential for our salvation. And then I say this, you know, it's not really that different than what you believe. Can I give you an illustration to help you understand it from our perspective? According to, according to your gospel, if somebody dies and doesn't hear the restored gospel, they never hear about Joseph Smith, they never hear about even Jesus, are they without hope? I'm going to say, no, no. Uh, and they invariably will point to their temple there on the grounds. That's why we have the temple. We can be baptized for them. Okay, but the good works, so, so that you could get baptized for them. Well, how do they get temple worthy to get the, the baptism to apply. Oh, no, we do that for them too. Okay, so you get temple worthy. You go in the temple. You get baptized for them. Oh, but they didn't do their confirmation, did they? Oh, we do that too. Okay, well, you do that too. Well, then how do they pay their tithing? I just told you we do that. That's, we, we, we do that for them. They're, they're dead. Well, then what good works are they doing? And finally, they get frustrated. They're dead. They can't do anything. See, see, that's really not that different than what we're saying. See, we're saying that somebody else has to do the work for us, proxy. But our proxy is not another member of the church. It's Jesus himself who does the works on our behalf. All we do is believe. He does the works. But here's the missing part. When I look around out here at Manti and see all these thousands of people, you know what? I see dead people. But they don't know they're dead. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 1, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But we don't know that, so we think we can do something. But until we realize we're dead, see, dead people can't do anything. That's why we need a proxy. If Mormonism is true, the vast majority of people who will go to the celestial kingdom will never do anything. Somebody else is going to do it for them. All they can do is believe. They're dead, right? All they can do is believe. And so you can see, if you're watching their face, there's that moment of recognition. They do understand. And it's not that different than what they've been taught. The difference being, who's going to be your proxy? Is it going to be another member of the church, or are you going to let Jesus be that proxy for you? See, like that illustration? It's a good conversation. Thank you so much for allowing me to come and share with you. I'll be available at the table to answer any individual questions. Please get the word out, uh, and you're going to love uh, to hear from Daniel as a former Jehovah's Witness next Wednesday. Thanks.